It, it is good to be here. I um, always enjoy traveling in this direction and uh, in these uh, last couple of years spending time with you. This is, this is home to us, Merrimax, where I spent my high school years, went to Pentucket Regional High School and uh, lived just off the Merrimack Square. In fact, that big white former church building in Merrimack Square is the church where my father pastored back in the 1970s, and uh, so this is, this is really a, a wonderfully deep, satisfying experience to be here, and to see God's work going on here uh, after all of these years, so uh, it makes us very thankful, and it, it affects us very, very deeply. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of what God is, God is doing. Uh, I want to I greet you from Gaylene, my dear wife, who's always at my side no matter where I go. Uh, I want to greet you from the elders and pastors of Covenant Fellowship Church, where I have the joy of being one of the pastors. Uh, they have released me to the work that, that God is calling me to as the regional leader. It's also where Paul and Peggy were uh, worshipped for a season. Uh, I want to greet you from the northeast region of Sovereign Grace. There are... Uh, some 25 churches or so that are a part of Sovereign Grace uh, in the Northeast, and um, they would all greet you as brothers and sisters in the Lord and as partners in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we greet you from Mark Prater, uh, the executive director of Sovereign Grace and the leadership team. Uh, we Believe me, we, we cherish our partnership. We cherish being a part of what God is doing together in the world. And so uh, these last couple of days as we've shared time with your leaders and shared vision and, and encouragement I, in what I do, I get to, it's kind of like in Romans 1 where Paul talks, uh, writes to the Romans and he says, I long to be with you that I can impart some spiritual gift and that I might receive some as well. That's the experience that, that we have wherever we go and as we have been with you over these last couple of days. Thank you. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I think of this church and when I think of Crossway Church down in Franklin, Massachusetts, or when I think of Sovereign Grace Church in Dayton, Ohio, or I think of Grace Community Church up in Buffalo, New York, uh, or I think of the 60 or 70 other churches that are in Sovereign Grace, I often think of sequoia trees. I don't know how many of you are very familiar with sequoias, but you ought to be if you're not. It's one of those things that you ought to put into your bucket list and just make sure you get acquainted with sequoias. They are absolutely humongous living organisms. In fact, they are the largest living organisms on the planet. And the, the General Sherman sequoia tree stands about 275 feet tall. It, it weighs 2 million pounds. If you were to try to place it inside of this room, you could just barely do it because its width is wider than this stage just barely fit inside these walls here and go up for 275 feet. You could drive four tractor-trailer trucks through it side by side. You could fit 13 blue whales inside of this thing. 
It's amazing. And yet, and yet, the average sequoia tree has roots that are no more than five feet deep, on average about four to four and a half feet deep, which means that a 300-foot tall tree that weighs two million pounds has a root system that goes from about my chest down to my feet. A dandelion has a root system about half of that, two and a half feet for a dandelion for its eight inches of growth, two and a half feet of roots. You know, you, you kind of look at that and say, something's weird there. How, how did that happen? Two, two and a half feet for a dandelion, four, to, four and a half feet for a sequoia. You say, how can it stand? A sequoia stands. Some of them were alive when King David walked the planet. And you say, how can they survive so many storms, so many centuries, so much, so much attacking, so to speak, from nature? How do they survive? How do they stand? The answer is in this. Their roots do not go deep so much as go horizontal. Their roots will cover two to three acres of land. And in doing that, will wrap themselves around hundreds of tons of soil. And, and this is really cool, they will wrap themselves around the roots of other sequoias. And that's why you'll find that almost all sequoias grow in groves. Because they, in a very real sense, exist to support and strengthen and keep alive each other. Brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you this morning that that is God's intention for us. We are, we are all meant to be sequoias, spiritual sequoias who, who last, who endure, who make it to the end, but we will only last, we will only endure as we stand together and, and weave our roots together as brothers and sisters in Christ within a local church such as this and according to the New Testament not just within a local church but local churches standing as as grove partnerships if you will as as partnerships whose roots are tied together who are bound together and they keep each other alive they keep each other standing and it is that which I'd like to talk to you about this morning by inviting you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Going to read beginning in verse 12 down through verse 18. And in what is really a, a fascinating window into the Apostle Paul's heart. I just Just try to... Try to catch a glimpse here of this remarkable man. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, be 
by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. This is a, this is a remarkable text, and it is this window into Paul's heart that I, I think we can learn from this morning. I want us to kind of set the context here, just make sure we know where we are biblically and where we are geographically and historically. Paul, Paul is in jail uh, because of his preaching of the gospel. It's probably the imprisonment that's mentioned at the end of the book of Acts. Uh, and he's sitting in jail for somewhere around two, a little bit over two years of time. The, the finest preacher, the finest evangelism, uh, evangelist, the finest theologian that the church has ever seen. And in large measure, he is put on the ministry shelf for two years. No sure release in sight. No one knows for sure whether he's going to uh, be released or martyred for his faith, whether he's going to be imprisoned even longer or what's going to happen. Nobody knows. Yet in spite of this, he is not depressed. He, he is not discouraged. In fact, he is quite elated. He says, I am rejoicing and I'm going to keep on Rejoicing. There is here, folks, just a simple life lesson. Notice it. There is, there is no tight connection between the state of Paul's circumstances and the state of his joy. There is, there is no tight connection that says, my circumstances have to be fun in order for me to be joyful. He's in prison, folks. And he doesn't know if he's getting out, and yet he's rejoicing. It doesn't need to feel happy in order to be joyful. Life can be full of joy even in the midst of deep and profound afflictions. Now, in Paul's case, we, we want to check to see why he was joyful. Why was he rejoicing? And the answer is because... What had happened to him, he says, had resulted in the advance of the gospel. Notice verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has, has really served to advance the gospel. Paul knew that rather than impeding the kingdom work of God, rather than impeding the advancement of the gospel, his imprisonment had actually furthered the work of God. The, the gospel was getting preached. The gospel that, that God so loves sinners that he is willing, has been willing to enter into our world, to live on planet earth, to live among us as a perfect human being and die as a perfect substitute for sinners to, to atone for, to, to take away God's wrath for our sins. The gospel of a crucified and buried and, and risen and reigning and saving and redeeming Savior, that gospel was going forth. And Paul says, that's what makes me happy. That's what gives me joy, even in prison. Now, now how was that happening? It's, it's 
pretty fascinating, actually, to see how the gospel is advancing. First of all, in verses 12 and 13, we see that it's advancing through Paul's own witness. I want you to know, brothers, that what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. We learn in chapter 4 that some members of Caesar's household had come to faith in Christ. This is pretty remarkable. Paul's under house arrest, and there's a, there's a soldier, an imperial guard, that's chained to him. Now, who's the captive, right? Talk about, you know, having a captive audience. Paul just says, well, this guy's standing by me all day. Let me give him the gospel. And he gives him the gospel, and the guy gets saved. And next guard comes in, gives him the gospel, the guy gets saved. It it ripples up? Do things ripple upward? We're going to go with that. It ripples upward all the way into Caesar's household. And Paul's saying, my imprisonment has, has literally advanced the gospel. But it wasn't just through his preaching. It was through the preaching of other believers. We see this in verse 14. Good-intentioned and, and sincere believers. Most of our brothers, he says, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This happens, right? Whenever you hear of Christians who have been persecuted or martyred for your faith, do you not feel at least a, an upsurge of courage to witness yourself? Doesn't it affect you? You hear of someone else's courage and, and you kind of want to be like that. I want, I want to proclaim Christ with that kind of zeal, with that kind of passion. That's what was happening. Other Christians were here. And Paul, the apostle, the one who saw Jesus on the Damascus road, he's in prison now. Well, if, if, if it means that much to him, if, if he's willing to, to, to give up his freedom and his life for the sake of the gospel, then I'm going to proclaim the gospel too. But it's, it's really ironic, as we go on here, to learn that it wasn't just his preaching or his friend's preaching, it was some of his competitors' preaching. He goes on in verse, verses 17 and 18 to talk about people who were not sincere. Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Then he goes on to say, what then? In every way, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. What's going on here is that there were people, there were preachers and pastors that were hearing of the fact that Paul was in jail and were taking advantage of that fact, saying, if I preach now to some of his followers, and if I preach to others, they'll come into my church. They will follow me. I'll take them away from Paul. He's on the shelf. Let me take advantage of his imprisonment. And Paul says, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter. In fact, I rejoice because even they are preaching the gospel, and that's what gives me joy. It's amazing, isn't it? What a window into this man's heart. From it, I want us to learn four principles for life in the church that I believe are relevant and timely for us. And I would, I would summarize those four principles with this one statement. We experience life's greatest joy when we share in its greatest cause. We experience life's greatest joy when we share in its greatest cause. Now let, me, let me just 
unpack that for you with four principles. First, here's principle number one. Joy comes in being a part of something bigger than ourselves. Joy comes in being a part of something bigger than ourselves. What gave Paul joy here? It was the preaching of Jesus. It was the advancement of the gospel. It was something bigger than him. You know, I I do get to travel around a lot these days, and one of the things I'm noticing, to be quite honest, in a lot of places is that there is something of a joy crisis going on in the church today. There's a lot of Christians who, in the words of one man, seem to have been baptized in lemon juice. And they're sour, and they're sad, and, and, and life is hard. It is broken. Believe me, I know that as well as you do. I've lived it as much as you have. It is hard. It is a broken world, and we are broken people, and we have broken families, and we have broken circumstances, and, and everything's broken all around us. And if you don't weep, you're not paying attention. It is hard. But we are to be at the same time as we weep rejoicing. And, and how do you get there? Can I, can I suggest to you that there's, there's two ways to find joy in the midst of all the pain. One of them is to live life in Christ. That's why Paul says in, in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I will say rejoice. If you know who you are in Christ, if you have found your identity in Christ, you are redeemed in him, you are loved in him, you are adopted in him, you are chosen in him, you are sanctified in him, you are made powerful in him, you gain victory over sin in him, you are destined for glory in him, you have already ascended to the heavenly places in Christ. If, if you get what it means to be in union with Jesus Christ, to have Jesus as Lord and Savior and your representative before God the Father, and you, you, you dwell on that and meditate on that and live in the good of that and count that to be real and true about your life, you will rejoice in the Lord, no matter what's going on around you. Rejoice in the Lord. Live life in Christ and you will find joy no matter what. And live life outside yourself. Outside yourself. Remember Jesus' words? It is more blessed. You remember the words? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Blessed means joyful. It is more happy. It is more wonderful. Life is fuller and happier and more satisfying when you give rather than receive. What's he saying? When you live outside yourself. You see, um, the most miserable people on the planet today are people who can't get outside themselves. They're stuck in their own little world of circumstances and sorrows and trials and needs. And I'm not making light of the sorrows and the needs. We need to stand with and for each other in all the sorrows and needs. But brothers and sisters, it's only as you step outside that world of sorrow and step into the lives of others and step into something bigger than you that you're able to rejoice with Paul no matter what's going on in your life. Joy comes. We we get over the lemon juice syndrome. 
only when we live our life in Christ and when we live our lives outside ourselves. We live for something bigger than us. And, and if it is true that come, joy comes from living for something bigger than ourselves, then I would suggest to you by sheer logic that the greatest joy comes by living for the greatest thing going. For the greatest thing outside of ourselves, which is the glory of God through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners, the making and maturing of disciples around the world. That is something worth living for. That is what will bring joy to you no matter what is going on in your life. Joy comes from being a part of something bigger than ourselves. That's principle one. Principle two What we are a part of is a partnership. What we're a part of is a partnership. Paul really emphasizes this throughout the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians is really a something of a of a manual on partnership, cooperation. There are words like fellow worker, fellow soldier, partner, fellowship. Serve with, be side by side, be of one mind. These are, these are all Paul's vocabulary in the book of Philippians because he's aware that what he is a part of is a partnership. He's doing it with others. We see it really clearly, don't we, in verse 3 where he writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Paul Paul was thankful for the Philippians because they were partners with him in the gospel. They had over the past years, time and again, sent him offerings, sent him workers, those that would help him with tangible help, those that would help him with financial help. They had prayed for him. They had stood with him in the gospel. That was the New Testament way. Churches never functioned in isolation. Churches never functioned just in their own teeny tiny mission field around their neighborhood. Churches functioned in partnership with other churches and with, with men who traveled about and proclaimed the gospel. This, this is how New Testament churches, part of how they found their identity, they found their identity in Christ. They found their identity in Christ together as a local church, and they found their identity in Christ together as a local church in partnership with other churches. It's a a glorious thing, and and when you see it work out, it it becomes something that gets exciting. And and, uh, again, I I get the opportunity to see it up close these days. I, I see partnership happening in sovereign grace churches. I think of I think of some dear friends of mine, Matthew and Lee Dwinnells. They were part of our church in New Jersey for, oh, decades. And I don't know, about six or seven years ago, I had, I had asked Matt and Lee if they would lead our evangelism ministry. We had spent a few months getting this all planned and scheduled and developed and getting them equipped, and they were all poised and ready to go. And I got an email from Sovereign Grace that said that an orphanage that Sovereign Grace is helping to support down in Mexico was in need of an English teacher and an office worker. 
And I read this email. I said, uh, uh, Matt told me about three weeks ago that he really thinks the Lord wants him somehow, somewhere to teach English. And Lee is an experienced office worker. And it's one of those moments as a pastor where a little temptation going on here. I don't want to lose Matt and Lee. So do I just somehow delete this email without ever mentioning it to anyone? You know, I'm sitting there, delete or forward, delete or forward. And I thought about the partnership and the joy of being a part of something bigger than ourselves. And I said, I'm forwarding this to Matt and Lee. Matt and Lee got this email and their hearts rejoiced, just leaped at the opportunity. Sold their home, sold their business, moved to Mexico. Served in the orphanage there for three years. While there, caught a vision for orphanage work in Lee's homeland, the Philippines. And so got connected to our Sovereign Grace partners and churches in the Philippines. And through that partnership began an orphanage in the Philippines that's now serving over 30 children. And this work of God, this advance of the gospel is going on, well, in some measure, it's because God envisioned them, it's because God envisioned me, it's now because God has envisioned several churches to support them in partnership with the church that's going on there. And, and I look at that and I say, this gives me joy. This is a happy thing. Yesterday, Paul took me up on a, is it the highest point in Manchester, pretty close. There's this overlook in Manchester, New Hampshire, and he took me up through the mud and the snow there, and we finally got to the top and just stood there and looked down over a city. Virtually the whole city is down below. You can see almost all of it. If you haven't been there, you ought to go see it. If you want vision for the church plant in Manchester, go sit on top of that hill for a bit. And there's, what, 110-ish thousand people? in Manchester, so that means in all those houses that I was looking down, over 110,000 human beings represented. And if the stats and studies are accurate, 108,000 of them have no saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Manchester needs a gospel-loving, gospel-preaching church. I look out over the city and I see, I see buildings that symbolize wealth and prosperity. I see other buildings that hint at poverty. I see other buildings that stand out, but I know that they are buildings in which superstition and false gospels are proclaimed. And I look and I say, where's the building? Where's the place where the gospels preach? How will the church get there? Well, it'll get there as this church catches a vision for it. As a Jacob Young and a Michelle Young, if God should lead, come and are willing to be a church planter there. As sovereign grace churches in the region and beyond say, we want to be a part of this. We want to give so that this work can go forward, so that this city can be reached with the gospel. It's a glorious thing to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. To be a part of that which is the greatest thing going, which is 
the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is a glorious thing to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, and what we are a part of is a partnership. Let's do this together, for as one sovereign grace brother of mine used to tell me often, we can do much more together than we can ever do alone. Third principle, what we are a part of is more important than the part we play. If some of these ideas sound familiar, it's because, well, I I know at least a couple of them I borrowed from somewhere. I'm not exactly sure where, Uh, but I do that. I like to give credit to some nameless soul out there. Somebody said this before me, not original. What we are a part of is more important than the part we play. Think about it with Paul. Paul cared a lot more about what he was a part of than he did about the part that he played. What was, what was the part, part that Paul was playing at this time? Paul is a prisoner. Paul is in jail. Paul is a victim of injustice. Paul is a victim of the selfish ambition of other preachers. Paul is a potential martyr. But Paul looks at the situation and says, what I'm a part of is more important than the part I play. It doesn't matter what I'm doing in this, so long as it gets done. It doesn't matter if I get the, 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 the praise. It doesn't matter if I get the fame. It doesn't matter if I get the pat on the back. It doesn't matter if I get the numbers of followers following me. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that Jesus is preached. That the gospel is advanced. He's much like a forerunner of his, John the Baptist, who when Jesus is beginning to draw followers away from John, and John's followers come to him and say, hey, something's happening here. You're losing your people. What does John say? He must increase and I decrease. That's the mindset of kingdom builders. That's the mindset of people who know what really matters. What matters is not me. What matters is not my part, my role, my fame, my popularity. What matters is that people get saved. What matters is that Jesus becomes famous. Reminds me of Matthew 10. Verses 41 and 42. Matthew 10, 41 and 42. These words of our Lord. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. I want you to think about what Jesus is saying there. The one who receives a prophet, that's... that's, um, Biblical language for hospitality. That's the language of receiving, giving a cup of cold water, welcoming, supporting, sustaining, and encouraging and blessing a prophet. The the one who gives a cup of cold water to a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Get what Jesus is saying. It's not... The part you play that matters, it's what you're a part of. He who receives a prophet because he is a prophet, in other words, because he is proclaiming 
the truth and the word of God. He who receives a prophet because he is a prophet gets a prophet's reward. You may not be a church planter. You may not be a preacher. You may not be a missionary. But he who receives and blesses and encourages and supports and sends all those who are doing that work get the reward of those who are doing that work. It's not the part you play. It's what you're a part of. That matters. And so... As we think about all that God has before you as a church, before us as a family of churches, let's think in these terms. Joy comes in being a part of something bigger than ourselves. What we are a part of is a partnership. And what we are a part of is more important than the part we play. Brothers and sisters, these aren't just you know, kind of clever-sounding sound bites. They are, they are biblical, life-shaping, vision-casting, unity-producing, kingdom-building principles for life. As we grab hold of these things, churches get built and new churches get planted and disciples get made and disciples get matured. And God gets glorified. Now let me, let me just wrap it up with this one final thought. Jesus took the humblest part so that we might have a part in gospel joy. Jesus took the humblest part that we might have a part in gospel joy. Look in your Bibles at Philippians chapter 2. If you just glance back at verse 27, you, you read these words of Paul's. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm no Apostle Paul. Um, but as a regional leader in Sovereign Grace, you know, let, let me just tell you this, that if I hear that you folks are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, I'm going to be one happy man. Paul says, you know, do this, do this, you know, do this, stand together, stand firm, stand side by side. In fact, down in chapter 2 he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Notice, he didn't care what part he played. I'll take the form of a servant, a slave, Jesus said. And being born in likeness as a man, as men, the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We must close out this call to partnership as a church and churches by looking at the one who took the humblest part, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He who was in the form of God. That means he who was God himself, God shining forth, God made visible, God in all his glory. He who was in the form of God didn't grasp it. He didn't cling to it. He didn't say, I need to have this role. He says, I'm willing to become human. And I'm willing to become a servant and a slave of God the Father to do his bidding and to become obedient unto death. And not just any death, the death of a cross, a cursed death. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus is saying, I am willing not only to relinquish my glory in my role, so to speak, as an equal with God. I am willing to take the humblest part. I am willing to forsake God's smile, the Father's smile, and endure His wrath. I am willing to forsake the blessing and endure the curse. I am willing to be damned by the Father so that my people will not have to be damned. That's what this is about. And if he has done this for us, how can we not do it in return for him? And for all the lost people of Haverhill and the surrounding area, and how can we not do it for each other? It doesn't matter what part we play. Let's give life up for something bigger than ourselves. You want joy? You want to get out of the lemon juice? You want, a, you want something, a joy that cannot be touched even when life stinks? Sometimes it does. You want a joy that can't be touched and be a part of something bigger than you. And you want the greatest joy going? Then be a part of the greatest thing going. The advance of the gospel of Jesus to his glory. That's the end of it, right? He receives a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. May he live and be willing to die for the fame of his name and for the glory of his Father. Let's pray. Father... Give us vision, give us faith. Give us a spirit that includes the mind, the attitude of Christ. To take the humble part in being a part of something bigger than ourselves. And Father, if there are any here this morning who do not yet have a part in the forgiveness and grace of Jesus. Oh, Lord, help them to see that they are lost, that they are sinners, that they are right at this moment sitting as condemned human beings who will one day go to hell.
but help them to see that in Christ they can be assured right now that there is no condemnation, that heaven is their destiny. And help them to see, O oh Father, that not only in coming to faith in Christ do they, do they gain heaven and forgiveness, but they gain meaning and purpose and significance for here and for now. And they become a part of the greatest thing going, your kingdom and your glory. Save those who are here needing salvation and strengthen and encourage and build up those who need to be strengthened. I pray in Jesus' name.